This is IAQ Radio, Indoor Air Quality Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry, with your hosts, Radio Joe Hughes and the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. And now, Radio Joe Hughes. Good day and welcome to IAQ Radio Plus. It's episode 686, and this week we welcome Bob Blockinger, Mickey Lee, and Dr. Ralph Moon for the Moisture Mob Flooring Panel Grand Finale. Before we get started, let's thank our sponsors. They're the reason we can continue doing the show. And don't forget, after the show at Afterthoughts forward slash iaqradio.com, you can continue the discussion sponsored by First On Site. Our marquee sponsor is First On Site at firstonsite.com. Our association sponsors are the American Conference of Governmental Industrial Hygienists, ACGIH.org, the American Industrial Hygiene Association, AIHA.org, the Institute for Inspection, Cleaning, and Restoration Certification, IICRC.org. Industry sponsors are AEML Laboratories, AEMLINC.com, Particles Plus, ParticlesPlus.com, TSI Inc., TSI.com, Sunbelt Rentals, SunbeltRentals.com, Healthy Indoors Magazine, HealthyIndoors.com. And now you can win a cool prize. It's time for the IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Be the first to correctly answer. Simply email your answer to czlotnick at cs.com. Or if listening live, just text your answer from your computer. And now, here's the Z-Man. Hello, everyone. Congratulations go out to Vic Cafaro, Chesterfield, Virginia, who was first to identify Rocky and Blowout is the other two movies in which the ship Mishulu, which transports young Vito Andalini to New York City and The Godfather, also appears. The IQ Radio trivia question for today, January 13, 2023, is sponsored by TSI Inc., an industry leader in precision instrumentation for monitoring of indoor air. Learn how to expand your IQ investigations at TSI.com. Here's today's IAQ trivia question. Which character in Godfather 1 was given the name Leonardo Passifaro at birth? Back to you, Joe. (laughs) All right. Bob Blockinger was raised in New York City, working in the family construction business. He began his career in the flooring industry in 1970, offering carpet cleaning and installation while specializing in water and fire damage restoration. He later expanded into the retail department store sector, providing installation of floor covering sales. And during the 90s, his company started to service the architectural and interior design trade with high-end floor covering product sales and installation. He currently works as an expert witness, inspector, and investigator for law firms, condominium associations, and flooring manufacturers. Mickey Lee is currently a private consultant, providing consulting, training, research, and writing services in the fields of property damage, restoration, psychrometrics, drawing science, mold remediation, and structural drawing after water intrusions. Mickey Lee retired from the Munters Corporation U.S. branch in 2011 after serving there in various roles for over 20 years. And Dr. Ralph Moon is a building scientist with more than 42 years of consulting experience in the areas of duration of loss studies, material testing, risk assessment, project management, industrial hygiene, and indoor air quality assessment. Dr. Moon has published over 60 peer-reviewed papers and 40 technical articles and papers and is a frequent expert witness on insurance-related claims and projects. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Welcome back, I should say. Great to have you all back on this week. Uh, let's start with Bob Blockinger. Bob, after last week's show, there was a series of emails going on between the you know the participants on the show and some of the moisture mob here. And um, I think you made some really good points in those emails. I wonder if you could kind of summarize what your thoughts were after last week's show. All right. Um, I've always considered myself a field guy, not a chemist. And uh, the, the how to concrete is made up is that's for the um, consideration of others. But when we go in as a flooring installer, uh, there's a lot of information we just don't know. And the, uh, the, they try to blame us for any failures or we should have known better is the comment. 
And uh, when we point out that this lab is not ready due to whatever testing we did, uh, they say, well, we'll find somebody else if you don't want to do it. These are just negative comments from uh, owners and contractors. But the bottom line is that the, the general contractor owner, it's his responsibility to turn over a slab that is worthy of us working. Uh, a slab that has a surface which is um, irregular, dirty, soiled, uh, full of debris, that's something that we can take care of as an installer, but the chemical makeup and the moisture emission of a slab is something that is beyond the scope of any typical installer. And uh, I was on the side of not blaming the installer for everything because he just doesn't know because uh, he didn't bring along his chemist, his attorney, and that's not up to us to do that. So there's a lot of science involved, which is beyond the scope of a, of a uh, everyday flowing installer no matter what he's putting down. Yeah, it's got to be a tough position for these guys. Um, you know, like, it's a big job. They want that project, and they get there, and they find that maybe – how many of these guys actually are out there measuring moisture content in the concrete before they start the project, Bob? Probably 10%. Wow. Uh, and they use meters that they find in a retail store, which are not of the caliber that we require, uh, such as myself, um, uh, I have probably three meters, each one costing at least $1,000. And when you get them at Granger or one of the other retail outlets, you might spend 100 bucks. Well, there's no comparison. Ours is professional level, much better information. The other one, and besides the fact, most guys don't understand that this meter, no matter which one you have, is an indicator of a problem. The next step is to go to the uh, ASTM 710 instructions, which tell you to do a 2170 or 1869 uh, moisture test, which will tell you exactly what's going on within the slab. These meters, these impedance meters, they fail to realize they're uh, indicators of a problem. Interesting. So what, I, I mean, I, I kind of, there's kind of a disconnect there. 10% of these guys are even bothering to check for moisture. Um, I, I guess in that case, I'm a little concerned. Maybe, maybe they do have some liability. Uh, they do in the respect that they accepted the, the slab as it is, which means whatever slab you go or whatever substrate you're going to put a flooring onto, uh, whether it's adhesive or uh, whatever method you're going to use, once you touch that slab with a trial of adhesive, you just bought it the way it is. And that's where their liability comes in. Uh, if they didn't do the proper testing and say, okay, we have elevated RH. Now you give that to the owner, GC, you got to do something. You got to fix this before I can start doing something. Um, currently, I'm working on a 60,000 square foot retail store, three stories. Uh, we did uh, moisture testing and uh we have three different floors. One is on slab, I mean, sorry, on grade. Um, and part of it has a crawl space underneath it for whatever reason. These buildings were built in Miami Beach back in the 50s. Well, they're now mulling over how much money do we have to spend to make the, uh, the concrete slab available to our glue down carpets and double stick installations? And what quality of adhesive do we have to have? And then what about the elevated pH that's sitting around 12, 13, when it should be 9? And most adhesives only go to 10. I think there's one that may go to 11. So there's various chemical aspects of a floor covering that the installer should know or should research, uh, maybe get an idea. But at the same time, he has to be able to stand up and say, look, this is not ready, such as electrician, plumber. Their word is accepted because they consider themselves to be uh, trained and everybody respects their trade because for whatever reason. But I've been saying for years as a flooring guy, um, my work is just walked on. So there's little respect for what we do. And other people control our pricing, not us. So Interesting. It's, uh, I wonder. Yeah. I could talk I for hours thought, on this. <laughs> I'll bet. Uh, well, and I, 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 I thought people should definitely check out the show we did with you. Um, it's actually the first one we did with you, and it was excellent. We'll put the link up to it because you go over a lot of these issues in, in a great bit of detail. Mickey Lee, let's have you jump in here real quick before we go to Dr. Moon and his recent uh, 
research on on floor coverings and their effect from moisture. But Mickey, I wonder if you have any comments from the first pro, from the first show. Uh, concrete moisture. I know most of the time you're probably dealing with concrete that got wet after the fact, not started out wet. But I'm wondering if you have any comments on the first show. Uh, yeah, uh, several thoughts, Joe, and 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 I'm I'm totally with Bob on this. The people because I I come in after the intrusion, way after you know, and, and that concrete may have been there for five years, ten years, thirty years, fifty years. So it's not it's not new construction. Ninety nine percent of the time that I, I go on it, but I find that restores who are who are tasked with drying the building often have exactly the same issues that Bob just mentioned. They don't use a decent meter. Uh, even if they did use a decent meter, usually it's going to be the wrong meter. <laughs> and mm. then in a lot of cases, they don't know how to use it. Or they think that, that every meter is basically the same. You just hit the button, turn it on, and then you push it down on top of the, you know, you press it to the concrete. And that's about the extent of a lot of it. And so I find uh, that, you know, in my, in my classes, I, I teach them on proper use of different meters. And I also tell them, make sure that you've read the instructions. Because if you're on scale one and you should be on scale two and you're on scale three or whatever, you're not going to get a decent, you're not going to get any kind of a valid reading that's going to tell you, tell you anything. The other thing that I tell restorers, I say, look, you take readings and you do moisture mapping for your own purposes. But unless you are the flooring installer, you don't want to warrant that floor. And so I don't want to take that monkey on my back. So what I do is I find, find out, you know, I, I, there's a lot of questions that I have, and maybe we can talk, talk that through a little bit later as far as what I'm going to ask uh, 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 Restore. The, but then I said, the last thing is you take ratings for your own purposes. And at whatever point you think that it is dry, that it is, quote, back to what your drying goal is that you set, uh, then you can go to your customer and say, Mr. Customer, I think you're ready to take your tests. Now, see the nuance of that. I didn't say, I think you're ready to put your floor in. I don't, I'm not saying that. I didn't tell you that. I think you're ready for your flooring in, uh, installer to take their test. And so that way, and also I encourage you to use, uh, use someone who will uh, who understands the ASTM special uh, uh, standards and who will do their testing according to the ASTM standard, whether it be the 1869, 2170, 2659, uh, which is the one that I, I prefer uh, is the non-destructive testing. But I'm going to do it with a meter that I think is calibrated and, and is uh, designed for uh, that uh, for that material, for that concrete. So that's kind of my... Uh, I don't know what the instruction, but that's my, uh, uh, you know, information that I give to the restores that I deal with. Now, most of what I'm dealing with, by the way, is not residential. Uh, my, my experience, my entire experience is, is in the commercial uh, field. And uh, in many cases on commercial losses, it's going to be a glue down commercial grade carpet or something of that nature that is being put on, or it may just be a, some type of an epoxy coating or some type of a coating on the concrete. So uh, anyway, that's kind of where my, you know, where I'm coming from. Well, let's get uh, Dr. Ralph Moon on here. You, you recently had a research project that was uh, published, I believe, in the Siri Journal, Cleaning Industry Research Institute Journal. And it was on, let me get my, my proper notes so I get the name right here, Ralph. Um, wood flooring, recognizing water damage, also with uh, Nolan Wells and Donald Gehring. Uh, I, I thought the research is actually something we could do a whole show on, but maybe at least we could get people to understand a little bit about what what real-world scenario were you trying to kind of replicate there or simulate during that particular research, Ralph? So. We, we were curious about two common scenarios. Our work is pre, pre, uh, predominantly with insurance companies where we're asked to go in after water loss and figure out the cause, origin, and duration. And many times we'd go to a residential home and we'd ask the homeowner, um, 
you know, did you ever notice you had a leak? And they had a, some type of a wood flooring material, solid laminate engineered or balsam, or I'm sorry, bamboo. And we'd ask them, did you ever see anything? And they would say no. So we were curious in our first experiment that if you just had a wet foundation in which you had applied some wood flooring, when would you finally be able to see something was wrong with the flooring? And this is common with for irrigation when people irrigate the sides of their home and water is absorbed by the concrete foundation, or you have a, a very incipient leak that you don't really notice much, but it tends to move by capillary action throughout the entire foundation. So the first experiment was to look at a variety of wood materials and see how they responded over about a four month period when the foundation was damp, but there was no liquid water. And that's important because I don't think that's an uncommon scenario. So what we found uh, is that the materials, the solids, the laminate, the engineered, and the bamboo perform precisely the same way as those materials would when exposed to moisture anyway. And that is that with just a damp floor, the, the solid material, solid wood materials would tend to cup depending on how the wood was cut. And so materials that were cut with a rift-sawn style, which is cut perpendicular to the, the annular rings of the wood and maintain, maintains its integrity, and it's also expensive because there's a little more waste, that performed very well, despite the fact that it was wet on the bottom. It did not cut. The other forms did, especially the planar cut, Wood. And you can tell that when you look at the, the plank of wood and you'll see the annular rings, it's kind of an oval shape. That will distort quite quickly when it's exposed to water with the underside swelling typically when that gets wet. Laminate, remarkably good. The engineered, remarkably good. And the bamboo as well. And for the most part, I think the, the first question we had was, can you tell when it gets wet? And the answer is not really. Not not unless you have solid that's cut in a, in, a, in just a straight, straight manner, but the rift and the others were remarkably stable for weeks and months when that floor was damp. Now, as a consequence, there was microbial growth that was quite prolific. All of them supported growth after about seven to nine days, depending upon the surface area that contacts the concrete. So the first experiment was basically focused on, okay, so we have a very modest leak. Can you tell when it gets wet? Answer is not very easily, unless you have solid wood that's cut the way I, I described. But the laminate, the engineer, and the bamboo was really excellent. The bamboo showed some cracking and some surface mold after about three or four, after about two or three months. But the engineer and the laminate was really good. And, and even discoloration was quite slight. So the bottom line was that for homeowners, for restorers, for cleaning professionals, when they come across a, a water loss, you really can't expect them to identify a leak early in the game unless they bring a moisture meter or they have a chance to pull up their flooring, in which case they would see microbial growth. So that was the first thing that kind of surprised us because we thought you'd see the year earlier. The second experiment, and these last about three to four months, is we submerge the flooring in water, not immersed, submerged. So it's partially wet, about half of it, to simulate that, that nasty on-vacation leak when you have a leak from the toilet, the ice maker, you're gone for two or three weeks, and the home floods. And we were curious, you know, what does that look like? And should someone obviously recognize it? Well. In, 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 the, in the briefest of terms, it got ugly quick. I mean, the, the extent of microbial growth, the surface discoloration, and some distortion, especially among the solid materials, uh, happened pretty rapidly. Now, remarkably, when solid materials get all wet, I mean, about the same time, they don't really deflect too much. They don't really cup too much. And I was wrong in saying it deflected, but that was really unusual in the appearance. It looked bad. Now, the bamboo, the laminate, and the engineered, they also look bad. They didn't really distort too much. So they're, 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 they're 
underlying competency is quite high. So for that reason, we thought this was helpful to give us a perspective, especially if you have a certain insurance claim, is it reasonable for a homeowner to see the damage within two weeks or a period of time? And the answer is, unless they're really thinking about their floor, and you know, is my floor wet, honey, is the floor wet today? I don't know, just check it out. Unless they're doing that, I would doubt that they would see it within two, three, four, even five or six weeks uh, because it's just not visibly apparent. Now, there are some things that, that made perfect sense. Like, for example, when you walk on a laminate floor that's been wet, you notice that the edges kind of get worn and you see that vinyl wearing off the, the butted ends, ends of the flooring. <laughs> made perfect sense, why? because when it gets wet, those butted ends tend to swell more than the interior portion of the plank. So they stick up. And so when you walk on it and there's some a wear pattern, you see that wearing on the butted ends. What should that tell you? You might have a leak. Something's probably caused that composite wood material to swell. So that was, that was interesting to kind of confirm what we see in the field when we see those worn edges and we've all seen it is that that means that floor has is, is, is gained some moisture. Ralph, I have a quick two follow-ups. One was um, when it's submerged in water. You said it, it pretty quickly, I think, was the term you used. How quickly? Are we talking hours or days before the microbial growth started days. to become visible? Yeah, within days. I mean, anytime, and, and all of our work with wood materials, once you add water, uh, the liquid water in particular, you get a response within two or three days where you start to see microbial growth. There's, it's not mysterious at all. I think the only time that it takes longer is when you're dealing with this is elevated humidity. But with liquid water, uh, there's a critical response of just a couple of days and you start to see growth. And as I said, we did this twice. And with the immersion, um, that it was, it was pretty rapid on all types of flooring. Uh, where you'd see the microbial growth. So th th that's not terribly mysterious. When the floor, the concrete just is damp, that takes longer and may not be visible uh, unless you pull it up for months. All right. Now you led right into my second question beautifully, Ralph. It's like we, we planned this, but we didn't. Um, damp. Can you <laughs> define what was damp um, for the experiment, for the research? Sure. So uh, in this experiment, which I have to thank uh, Nolan Wells for doing the, the base, that's for sure. We had a very flat two by three foot slab in which we added water around the perimeter, kind of like a moat. So water was absorbed, but not poured on the slab. And so it was damp to the touch. And now if you use a moisture meter, you would, you'd get excessive moisture, no doubt. But you did, there's no visible water. And we made sure that it was stayed about maybe an eighth of an inch below the top of the slab, very, very flat. So when we placed the wood on the, the sample of wood on the concrete, it was damp to the touch, but not wet. That, that, that's how we define that. Now, I noticed that, like all good researchers, you were very careful when you um, talked about how, the, how people would recognize the damage in the moisture damaged wood that had been exposed to dampness. And then again, also in the moisture damaged products that were, you know, immersed in water. One of the things I don't think your study uh, really looked at real closely, but you did mention in the paper was there was a tremendous odor as well with, I don't remember if it, which it was, but, I would imagine one of the things you would recommend is that we look more closely at when that odor occurs to help people in determining if there was a water damage. Yeah. And, and the reason I didn't, we don't use olfactory evidence. It's just that I've been tagged in depositions that unless I have a, a qualified nose and there are people that have like certified noses for a variety of chemicals, uh, you can't testify an odor. So I don't. But the point is that with usually within about uh, two to five days, 
you get a fairly pleasant wood, wet wood smell. That's true for really all the all the wood materials we work with. It's not unpleasant, it's a smell of wet wood, no problem. But after about um, two to three weeks, it begins to mature uh, to um, um, something much more uh, obnoxious. And, and there's, a, there's also an interesting period between about days 30 to 60, where it increases in odor, and after 60, it becomes more earth-like, like the smell of soil, earth, like an earthy smell. And after day 120, usually there's some exhaustion in all the available sugars and carbohydrates the fungi consume, and then it, it actually diminishes a little bit. But the point is that there is an odor character or a signature that indicates initial wetness that's like wet wood smell, and then it advances to more obnoxious odors between 30 and 65 days or so. Very interesting. Cliff, if you wanted to jump in. Yeah, actually, I, I wanted to ask Ralph a couple of questions. Uh, when you were doing the studies, Ralph, particularly on the one that you uh, submerged, it would seem to me that um, you can have a couple things going on there. Uh, you know, particularly underwater, you might have uh, bacterial growth. You might have the beginning of fermentation because, you know, you had some sugars and so on and so forth. And then, yeah, I guess, you know, where it's the wood is just damp, you know, there you're going to have, uh, you know, fungal growth. So I'm just not sure whether, um, I'm not sure what all the odors are related to, you know, certain things. I mean, even cardboard, you know, when it gets wet, it has a particular odor. And, you know, like you talked about wet wood having an odor. Uh, I just wondered whether you thought that, you know, there might be some bacterial contribution or fermentation, particularly when there's a lot of water for a long period of time. Well, well Cliff, as you know, you're absolutely right. It's complex because this wasn't done under sterile conditions. And we didn't use like distilled water. We used just tap water from the right. city of Tampa. But when you add wood to water and allow it to sit in, an, in a circulating atmosphere, uh, both fungi and bacteria grow. Now, we both understand that when you submerge wood, and I've seen this in, in old um, you know, 1880s uh, ships that sunk in Lake Michigan, right. they don't decay because of, of the absence of oxygen. But right. when you submerge it and allow oxygen to combine, you have a prolific microbial uh, uh, grouping of bacteria and fungi that's complex. And it wasn't our chance, but the point was that that if you're dealing with a long-term high volume leak in a home, then you can expect significant deterioration of the flooring materials and, um, and very advanced microbial growth you know, within a week or two of the initial loss. And you know, oftentimes I'm asked to, to date these and how long they, how long they, did they last. And for the, for the submerged situation, after about uh, you know, a month or two, you can't distinguish that easily from three, four, or five months because it just gets very advanced and you can't separate those two. But if you had something early in the game, you know, like just a couple of days and there was submergence, some submergence of, of the wood material, that should be relatively modest in the damage. And I, that's all I can say really to distinguish long-term from short-term. But nonetheless, it's much more advanced with that submergence because of the abundance and, and, and moisture. Thanks. Ralph, I'm curious, after that research, um, what would be your preferred flooring for its uh, resilience to water damage? Well, if you've got, if you've got a good uh, pocketbook, the, um, the, the wood that was cut with um, uh, a straight, that expensive cut, would be preferable because it didn't, it didn't cop. Uh, let me see if I can find that name. But the other would be is simply laminate. Or, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, not laminate. Engineered wood. Engineered wood is like plywood. And you know, if you get if marine grade or exterior grade plywood, when it gets wet, it, it's the it's consequence are fairly modest. Same thing is true with a good engineered flooring system. Um, and of course, what if you if you go to the uh, Home Depot and Lowe's as we have, there are a wide variety of quote laminated floorings i'm sorry engineered floorings that have a variety of materials in them you just want to make sure you don't get any any composite woods in them because they will swell they will swell in response to moisture but 
it was like a normal laminate layers of wood of various thicknesses, then I think that's best. And what was interesting is despite the fact that they were wetted for, you know, almost four months, there was no torque, no cupping. They were very nicely flat. And the <laughs> surface layer, as I said, didn't distort visibly when, when they're exposed to moisture. So I'd go with engineered flooring. And probably after that, um, well, probably the laminate, only because it didn't really change too much. And like a product like Pergo has that little foam beneath it. And the foam tended to keep it more protected from that wet concrete surface than those that were right on the concrete. Now, there would obviously be an adhesive between that and the flooring normally. We didn't have adhesives. We had it right on the concrete. But as far as competency, the, the Pergo-like products did quite well. And the bamboos did very well, too. Uh, and of course, they're not a wood, they're a grass. But nonetheless, um, the general performance for all of them was fairly good for a couple of months. Um, the only one that really changed right away was the, the solid wood that was cut with the plain type of plain cutting of the log that uh, did not intercept all the annual rings vertically. And Ralph, I, I noticed also that you, you also looked at plywood and OSB. Is that accurate? Oh, yeah. We looked at that for about a year for uh, wetting for constant moisture and repeated. And the nice thing about that story is the performance of the plywood materials, exterior grade, interior grade, generally was comparable to that of the engineered wood floor, is mm -hmm. that there was some slight distortion in the products for use for floor and wall and roof sheathing, but generally their performance was actually quite good. So once it was dried, even after a year of wetting, that exterior grade plywood was really quite competent. Uh, I can't say that for the interior grade uh, materials, but the exterior was very good. So yeah, and then the OSB, did you mention OSB, uh, Joe? Yes. Basically a, a, a composite wood. The composite woods don't do well. And that's got a, a component within the forest price laboratory they've been wrestling with since the 50s. How do we get these composite wood products, much like we have now with the, uh, the, the, the flooring with the same types of materials in them to behave better when exposed to moisture? And it, it's a struggle because there's an inherent capacity of the wood to absorb moisture they can't really absorb and they can't avoid. And I'm, I'm looking, and I'm going to ask this for a reason. I want to come back to Bob after halftime on this luxury vinyl tile. I, I don't see that on the list here, um, Ralph. Was that part of your research? Well, I would probably relate that to the the dense, the denser form of the um, of, of the of the flooring than the the. It depends on the pressure you apply to it, but. Luxury implies something to do with the surface appearance. I'm not sure if it does as much to the, if it's commercial grade or residential grade. So it must have to do with the, the appearance of the, of the vinyl to look more attractive. Okay. Let's go to halftime, John. Our marquee sponsor is First On Site, your trusted full-service disaster recovery and property restoration company at firstonsite.com. Association sponsors are ACGIH, Advancing Careers of Professionals in Environmental Health, Industrial Hygiene, and Safety, Interested in Defining Their Science. ACGIH.org. AIHA, Healthy Workplaces, A Healthier World. AIHA.org. The IICRC, a nonprofit standards development and certifying body for the cleaning and restoration industry. IICRC. CRC.org. Industry sponsors are AEML Laboratories. Free shipping, great pricing, same day results with no rush fee. AEMLINC.com. Particles Plus. Feature rich particle counters and air quality instrumentation. Count on us. ParticlesPlus.com. TSI Inc., an industry leader in precision instrumentation 
for monitoring indoor air. Learn how to expand your IAQ investigations, TSI.com. Sunbelt Rentals, availability, reliability, and ease for all your IAQ and restoration needs at sunbeltrentals.com. And Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online magazine for industry professionals and consumers, healthyindoors.com. All right, we're back with Bob Lockinger, Mickey Lee, and Ralph Moon. Bob, I want to go back to your first show we did with you. And on that show, in Cliff's blog, it said, the luxury vinyl towel is the bane of the industry because we don't know what it will do once it's on the floor. We have no control over installation, workmanship, training, and we don't know where it's going to be disposed of when replacement time comes. I wonder if there's anything – That was a, I think it was about – a year and a half, two years ago. Anything new on this? It's a pretty popular product. Um, and I, I would imagine the manufacturers know there were issues. Are, are they doing anything to help solve these problems? Yeah. Um, a while back, they came out with new instructions, which uh, is one of the things that installers tend to fail to read, uh, instructions on installation. And now they want you to put a visqueen uh, type moisture barrier on the concrete slab before you put the floor down with a six mil or better quality. Uh, this is to prevent any moisture from the concrete coming up. Then uh, you do the click system. They don't ask for uh, a, a specific moisture test anymore because they say that these floors are waterproof. But yet, why do you need moisture remediation before you put the floor down? So it's a, it's like an oxymoron. Um, as far as the product itself, it has improved. Um, they've gotten better with uh, moisture absorption by the core. Uh, this morning, I just looked at a job with an SPC, which is a stone polymer core. And it, the problem wasn't any moisture. It was constriction in movement which means that they didn't leave enough expansion space. So you've got a couple of variables out there, uh, and it's all because of, to me personally, lack of formal training, which means the person went to a, a, a structure, a classroom, not online, and had a teacher, and then he uh, had to pass a test. That, to me, is certification. And these online and YouTubes just don't make it for me as a former installer. So... As far as getting better, they, yes, the LVTs are getting better, much better than they were even uh, six months ago due to you know the manufacturer's research and whatnot. Uh, it's just that uh, you have to, uh, as the expression says, uh, buyer beware. Uh, if you're going to pay a 99 cent per square foot flooring, that's exactly what you get. If you're going to pay a three, four, five dollar a square foot flooring, you get a much better product, just like anything else. You get what you pay for. Yeah, that's uh, a great still, point, Bob. But they still haven't resolved. What do we do when we replace it? Uh, it's just going to the land dump. It's not a recyclable product. It's, there's no recycle program that I know of for LVT. And it is being used commercially more and more. Um, I see it in hotel rooms, um, in hotels. And it, it's, it's a great product for maintenance and quick installation um but it still has inherent problems because it is to me i have i have this phrase i use it's a chemical sandwich destined to fail <laughs> interesting very yeah. interesting all right let's go back to mickey mickey you know we've talked a lot about moisture coming from below and from the sides on concrete slabs i'm wondering uh you know you most of the time are called in i think when there's a flood of some type, a broken pipe, et cetera. And I'm curious, when when you're drying on these projects, does moisture from below ever affect the ability to dry out a moisture issue that came from above? Joe, in, in most cases, we are not seeing moisture coming up from through the concrete, Okay. Most of the time, it's going to be either through a, a broken water line, uh, an overflow, a roof leak, a water intrusion coming in like a flood. So generally, uh, we're, we're going to be drying out the, uh, the, the structure 
And while we're drying out the structure, we're going to be drying out the carpet. Or if it's a something like engineered flooring or laminate flooring or something else that is uh, damaged and uh, saturated, that's probably going to be a rip out. That's probably going to be a replacement. So we don't see a lot of water coming up from uh, underneath a, a slab or from underneath on those water damages. And Bob, I'm wondering in your business, you know, you do a lot of uh, expert witness stuff. You do a lot of inspection. How often do you find moisture wicking up from below is a problem on these projects? Quite often uh, here in South Florida, uh, when we have our HVAC units operating the AC, I'm finding that when some of these homes are 60% or better in RH value. And uh, as flooring guys, we like to see 45 to 55%. And, you know, moisture goes to cold. So any moisture in the concrete is drawn up into the house, which is, I'm going to say, uh, 74 degrees and uh, 55% humidity versus outside, we have 90% humidity and the temperature is 85 degrees. So you have that equilibrium fight. Uh, all the doors and windows and roof, everything is sealed for exterior moisture coming in, but the concrete has moisture in it forever. So therefore that's where it's drawn from. And I've had many instances where I was allowed to do destructive testing, whether it's a glue down wood, laminate, uh, uh, engineered solid wood floor and of late uh, vinyl flooring. And I lift up that first piece and the smell of mildew basically smacks you in the face to the point that I've had customers scream and run out the door because of the, uh, you know, the mold and mildew and all that stuff. So for South Florida, it's a problem. And it doesn't matter matter if you're on grade slab or you're 20 stories in the air. It doesn't matter because it's all about the ambient conditions and uh, the concrete slab uh, emitting its moisture. Ralph, I'm wondering, you know, in all of your time doing your expert witness work and looking at projects, have you run into the people having a, a difficult time drying out a slab because there's moisture below? You know, you get you get a broken water line or whatever the case may be. It floods your slab. Um, you have problems with pe- people that – go ahead. Early in the game, early in the game, 15 years ago when we were involved with water damage, that was probably one of the most – torturous events to try to monitor was a, a wet concrete slab, slab on grade, that seemed to take, I mean, they had equipment in, in place for months. And the, the the rate at which they were diminishing the moisture was just declining so slowly. So it's a, it's a very difficult task because concrete inherently wants to absorb moisture. That's the nature of its chemistry. But, but I found that very, very hard. I want to comment on Robert's statement about uh, what we call vapor drive, that is water vapor moving from high concentration to low. And in Florida in particular, any home with a crawl space, when the crawl space is wet and humid and and cool and warm, and the interior space is warm and dry, then you have movement of water vapor through the flooring, resulting in cupping and and all the things he mentioned, the mold growth and so forth. this is particularly common in South Florida because many people like to keep their homes at 72, 70 degrees even. And if the outside's 85, 80, high humidity, that floor will die if you have a crawl space, unless you have some way of protecting the, the vapor movement. But very common problem throughout the state if you have a crawl space situation with vapor drive and wood flooring. I want to go back to Bob for a minute here, Bob. Before we go to our roundup and bring in Andrew, and I'm not sure, I think we've got uh, a few others. Pete, of course, will be back, and I think we've got Robert back from our first show. But um, before we go there, Bob, can you give us a quick status update on the standards that you've been working on with IICRC? What's coming out next? What's getting revised? Well, as I mentioned earlier, the standards, uh, S-800, which is the textile, carpet textile uh, standard for inspection, uh, that was just put out to peer review yesterday. I'm sorry, today. So in about six weeks or so, um, we're going to uh, see what everybody has to say about it and I guess do some corrections and whatnot. 
then uh, and that's an IICRC standard. IICRC standard S eight hundred textile flooring inspection procedures. Um, I'm I'm a guest on the S two was it the two thirty and the BMI um, standard for which is building moisture uh, coming out of uh, Montreal with Gabriel. Uh, they're both work. The, these guys are working on those, and those committees are um, probably some of the best in the country as far as their level of experience and education. Uh, they should be coming out sometime this year, if I'm not mistaken. Other than that, those are the only ones I'm involved in. Okay, so that the the second one you talked about that's on how to measure moisture um, in buildings. You know, moisture related issues in buildings. Is yeah. that accurate? Yeah, it's uh, it's it's identifying and uh, measuring. Seems like that's something we should have had before. Yeah, it's uh, well past due, but uh, you know these standards are all made by volunteers, so it takes time. Great point, uh, Bob. Let's go to the roundup, John. the roundup. Hey, I just want to thank Madison IAQ again. And um, I, I tell you, we were talking before the show about the uh, thermostores, uh, ventilating, dehumidifying, filtering unit. I love that thing. Uh, more and more people should be using those. They're, they're just tremendous products. But anyway, let's go over. I, I, did Bob Higgins join us? I haven't been able to watch the uh, the chat. Pete, let me know what's going on. Yeah. Here. Hey, so let me tell you before you call an Andrew. So I don't see Bob on here yet. Maybe he may call in, but what happened is Roland is on here. And, oh. you know, on the last show, William said that Roland has some good comments. Now he's Roland is on a cell phone and he, he was at 408 number. I verified it, but then it looks like he maybe came in or out. So John Fake, if you, if you see Roland call in on that 408 number, we, we should try to call him back in. He, he's, he's probably driving in and maybe he had something come up. So, he had to go off, but uh, that's the only thing I see on the chat log. So back to you, Joe. All right. Well, let's bring in Andrew here and uh, see, Andrew, what kind of comments you have after this one. I know this is a, a show that's got to be really interesting for you. Uh, Andrew Reinhardt from, from the Tramax group. Andrew, do we have you? Thank you, Joe. Yeah, if you can hear me. Um, yes, sir. Great. I really enjoyed listening to that. There's not a huge amount for me to add at all. I am. Um, I liked hearing what Ralph was saying about the testing they were doing. And um, I personally, I mean, it's obviously it's a personal choice, but when it comes to flooring, I think natural products are so much better for, for, for walking on and for long-term health of the occupants than actually walking on plastic. So it's not just the fact that it goes to landfill, which is a really important point, but having these sort of plastic floors is not great for health. But when you've got hygroscopic materials such as wood or even bamboo or other things, then the amount of vapor within the concrete becomes important. And especially when the top of them are coated so that they reduce the vapor transmission through the floor, then the vapor builds up with it within them. But most a lot of wood products will allow vapor to come out the, the top of the product as well. So it doesn't build up to such a degree. A lot of the discussion around moisture testing actually comes from, this is another point, it comes from the resilient flooring industry. So, you know, with with solid wood, there's a lot of consideration about um, vapor pressure um, as well as moisture pressure. And if, if you don't mind, can I just, I'd like to say something on last week's discussion as well, because it came up there seemed to be a discussion about not using vapor barriers or not using surface barriers to protect flooring that, that they were unnecessary like epoxy and other things. And it's my experience. And, and this is just my own personal view is that they are over-specified for new concrete and they're not used enough for older concrete. So I think if the moisture testing is done correctly, there will be maybe less, um, sealers used on new concrete but a lot more used on older concrete and i say that because with new concrete the water is there the construction of water is there and it actually stops more moisture transmitting through it but with older 
concrete when you have empty sort of the pore spaces or the capillary spaces are void or empty then moisture can come up into that concrete and be absorbed up into that concrete even during heavy rain or you can have the vapor differential causing issues so when it's tested properly especially for old concrete the uh, sealers can help the building as well as the floor. So they're actually, I, I feel like they should be used a lot more with older concrete rather than newer concrete. Um, apart from that, it was a great discussion. There's so much to say, but I don't want to start a whole big discussion on moisture testing within uh, concrete. But there's two things to consider. One is the adhesive and the other is the floor product. So with the adhesive, Particularly, it's moisture near the surface that causes the issues because um, the adhesive needs to be allowed to create the bond strength that it was designed to create. And so if there is no moisture near the surface, the adhesive can form a proper bond. But then when you have issues like smell issues or something that can develop over time, that needs to be considered, you know, as well. So that's moisture coming up and building up over time. Um, so I don't know, but it was a great discussion and I, I really appreciated it. So thank you. I think the the thing that really struck me was that we didn't talk as much about moisture. And, and this is something that Steve Brook talks about in some of his work, moisture coming from the sides, not necessarily from below a concrete slab, but coming in from the sides of a concrete slab and that we have to protect from that more carefully. Um I thought that was an important point. But, Andrew, what I wanted to ask you real quick is I've seen, you know, I've been kind of uh, affiliated with the water damage guys for, you know, 20 years now. I don't do water damage restoration, but I do help evaluate projects. And I always used uh, the concrete encounter, which I think was a Tramex product. And I, I was wondering, why is it so much more expensive to build a concrete meter, a good concrete meter? versus a multi-use meter? Well, it's it's also the quantity of scale. Um, if, you know, if you're building meters for specialized markets, you're not building them on the same, uh, on the same scale. They're not, they're not made mass produced. Um, so there's a lot of different factors like that. And in particularly calibration, there's a lot of work done on making sure the calibration is correct. Um, but uh, we know, I know that I've seen stuff that's produced electronic equipment that's produced. And if you knew the conditions that it was produced under, you just wouldn't buy it, you know, where they, they, you can save money by not paying people and, you know, treating them quite badly, but it's one of the issues we have in the world today. So, you know, I was thinking about that myself recently. If, if, if somehow, you know, Bob mentioned that 10% of the floors installed were using meters. If we could get that up to 80%, we could certainly do an awful lot in terms of how we produce, how we have big runs of meters that we do um, to bring the, the, the price down, you know? So it's something that uh, would be good to have a sort of an industry wide discussion on how to do that let me uh let me comment on uh a couple of things that andrew said since andrew brought this up so hey john faith while while i got you can you put the a link in the chat log directly to cliff's Z, the z-man blog from last week and, uh, john do that yep. so a bunch of you on this call were on there last week but some of you were not and if you haven't read the uh the the blog that that went out John will put a link in there. You want to go take a look at the blog. Now, the, the whole blog is great. But my point I'm going to make is scan all the way down to where the watchdog comments are and then go down a little bit and see what Joe Steepbrook responded to. And this lends to the point that uh, Andrew just brought up. I had made some comments where I quoted Steepbrook. And after a while, when I thought about it, I said, well, if I'm going to put Steepbrook's name out there, we ought to have him vet the comment because sometimes the watchdog, the puppy's so excited, he starts peeing all over the place. You know, he can't, <laughs> he can't stay on the paper, right? Now, Mickey, you're smiling because you can definitely relate to that. He knows exactly what I'm talking about. So anyway, so Steepbrook responded back and his comments are in the final blog. Now, this is what Steepbrook said. What brought this whole thing up was Higgins made a comment that that 
plastic poly sheeting or, or Bob Blotchin just said Visqueen, which is just a brand name of a product. West Coast users, I used to use the term Visqueen in the 80s and 90s when I lived in California. And basically, uh, Higgins' viewpoint was it's worthless. It's worthless as a vapor barrier. And Seabrook had a little bit of a different viewpoint. The main thing I remember from Seabrook's teaching in the 90s when Cliff and myself first started going and we saw him at the City Science Center, Philadelphia, he said the most important thing, if you're in an area where there's either high water levels or a lot of rain and you have a slab directly on soil, he said you need to have a capillary break. And his suggestion for the capillary break are stones. He said, like in the old days, they would put stones down, then they would build off of that. All right. I asked about pea gravel. He said in some cases they use pea gravel as a break, but obviously it's not as good as doing stones. Then what he said, that's what's actually going to stop the, the, the is going to separate the moisture from getting directly in the concrete. Now, he said in, in those analogies, he says he has suggested that they can put like a poly sheeting down. But what he suggested was, he says, usually when they do it, he gets the, 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 the installers, whoever's laying it, they, they put golf spikes on and they walk around and they put little holes in there. Right. And then they pour it over like that. But he said, here's where the biggest issue is. And Joe, you brought this up and Andrew made a comment. He said, the biggest issue is, is when they put it down, they don't do the perimeters. They don't do the perimeters properly. So he says, what happens is it may be fine in the, in the basic field of the concrete, but he says the water pools around the end. He says, then it kind of slips up over the side. It gets, it gets into the concrete, all right? And then it starts to travel through the surface of the concrete. So the analogy for this, would be anyone who's in a construction and knows about building envelopes. One of Steve Brooks' uh, famous sayings, and he ha- and he wrote a couple he, on all these things on his website. Is so many technical things for free you could download. But he says if you want to save cash, flash. So if you build a building and you don't have proper flashing on the roof around the windows, that's where you're going to get the moisture penetration, either from the wind-driven rain, seepage, whatever. So, so that's the analogy. When I had a talk with him last week before he put his comments over the blog, I said, so Joe, so what you're saying is that's the equivalent, if you want to save cash flash, is that if you're going to use the, 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 the poly, you have to wrap it. You have to protect the perimeter when it's down. Otherwise, the moisture gets in. So, I mean, the, the biggest thing that I recall when I first listened to Joe talk and he talked about how moisture gets into buildings, he said, you have to look at them in orders of magnitude. Now, from restoration and guys, they know the most important thing when you walk into a building is to get rid of the standing water. If you're going to dry the carpet in place, do a thorough extraction. If you do a lousy extraction, that means the rest of the moisture that's in those materials, you have to try to remove it through air movement, dehumidification, and temperature differentials. That's hard to do that. All right? (laughs) Very hard. So he said the first thing they have to do is you have to have a roof on the building. You got to stop the water, the rain from coming in. Then you got to deal with the perimeter of the building. You have to drain the rain on the plane. Okay. Then that water that, that goes around the back that gets sucked into the building, the capillary action. After that, the two things are, are air movement and vapor diffusion. And people put a lot of effort and energy on those things, which are like least important to controlling the moisture and the physical bulk water in the building. Now, I remember in the early days with Munters, Munters had a lot of information, making recalls that they put out about t- controlling moisture in buildings. The air transport was important because it was based on the leakage, how often people open doors and windows, what kind of people were in the building. Was it a gymnasium where they're giving a lot of moisture off or is it just a stable office? Those things were important. And if you were in a hot, humid climate, how you control that, like in supermarkets and things like that, that was a lot different. Then you know what you would do in, in in a home that was in a different climate zone. This is what these five built all these builders climate zone books are about to understand that how to control the moisture. So I what I find in the restoration industry, and I can be critical of this, is sometimes the things of lesser importance. The the training puts too much emphasis on it, and they forget in orders of magnitude there are things that are more important. That was something that resonated resonated with me and Cliff 
years ago was orders of magnitude on the fourth the mechanisms for the moisture getting in and also the water activity issue. We're not going to get discussion, but that, you know, when that was presented to us in the 90s, nobody knew what the heck water activity was. Now they start to talk more about it. It's a moisture that's at the surface of the materials that's important. And that's what that's Higgins big point with concrete. All the issues is whatever moisture is on the surface. It isn't all the stuff that's deep, deep down. Now, Andrew knows, you know, a lot of those meters are designed, different technology are designed to do a deeper reading. But at the end of the day, most of the problems was ever on the surface. Now, anyway, but that's the best I can recollect from my teaching from Staybrook. And uh, uh, be careful. I don't want to have to go back to vet anything. Cliff was writing like a maniac. So don't use Staybrook's name. Just say the watchdog went off on a rant. <laughs> That'd be okay. But anyway, so. Andrew, I hope that that kind of reinforces what you were saying is that these issues around the perimeter of the edges, and this is how the moisture gets in that, that gets unattended. So if you want to save cash, flash, or uh, wrap yeah. <laughs> on the perimeter. Anyway, back well, to you, John. Well, that's why when testing concrete, it's very important to do a moisture map on the surface of the concrete with a with a concrete meter if possible, and you know, but any meter. And then the good, the best thing about the in-depth readings if it, we we developed and i'm not trying to plug it here or anything but we developed a probe for testing the moisture deep within the concrete and you can do an rh test deep within the concrete as well and the whole purpose of that is to see that is the moisture coming up within the concrete or is it coming down from the surface through dew point issues or something else in the building and if you have moisture coming up it's the difference between the moisture in depth and the moisture at the surface that should point you to putting down a sealer rather than the actual amount of moisture necessarily, because um, it, it, with older concrete, particularly the construction water is gone. So if you use the same standard, so if you say, right, the RH has to be below 85 or the moisture has to be below four and a half or 4%, whichever you're using. And then you go to a 30 year old concrete and you've got re you've got readings up near 80 and you've got moisture four and a, around a bit, bit more if the if the equilibrium moisture content in that area is much lower then you still got moisture problems you know so you need to know what your e e emc or your equilibrium moisture content is in your local area it's easy in ireland because it's all one climate but in the united states it's different climates so if you're in colorado versus florida you know you should be looking in older concrete in colorado should be 2 2.5% and in Florida, it could be 4%, you know, so it's something you need to be testing regularly in your area to know what what a dry concrete measures to. Um, and the same with RH testing, you know, like we've tested sometimes in Las Vegas at trade shows and you get the moisture in the concrete's less than 2%, you know, in older concrete. So if you if you got a concrete that was three and a half or four, then there's moisture coming into that from somewhere if it's if it's old concrete. So Even sometimes having a, a number is not good for old concrete. What you want to know is, is it, if there is excess moisture, where is it coming from? Is it coming up from the bottom or is it coming down from the top? It could be from an old leak or it could be from dew point or it could be from alkalinity in the surface. You know, there's different reasons why you can have moisture in the top of the concrete. Hey, hey Joe, uh, Go ahead, one, thing, one thing I want to throw out there before we sign off, I know Bob Lachinger had to leave and, you know, Ralph went into depth, but I, I don't think Mickey's got equal time. And before we sign off, I, I think it would be remiss if we didn't give Mickey one of the elder statesmen in the moisture and the drying business and one of the most highly regarded people in the in there. If he maybe says a couple of words that Cliff could put in the blog in the blog that are kind of call them the Mickey Pearls. You know, if Mickey is going to give some advice or give some information based on your personal experience, Mickey to the restoration remediation people, to the indoor air quality, to mold assessor testers, all that. You know, what, what are a couple of Mickey's pearls that Cliff could basically put in a blog? I, I, I think uh, Mickey has, has deserved the opportunity to get the last word, at least on that, before we close this show out. So, Mickey? Well, Pete, I appreciate that. I don't know that I've earned the, uh, the right to have the last word, of course. Because, but, but basically I am coming from a practitioner standpoint uh, from actual drying out of buildings after they have gotten wet. And one of the things that I tell the, my, my students, and I've been preaching for many years on this, is don't step over dollar to get dimes. That means don't get a cheap meter. And I am not a fan of all of the convergence technology 
to wrap everything into one. Hey, get you an get you an infrared camera that's also a moisture that's meter that is also a, a thermal hygrometer that is also a can opener and you know yada yada yada. <laughs> you know, uh, you know it's, it's just it's stupid to think that you're going to be saving money. So get you a good meter that you know is valid on concrete. Get you a good meter that you know is a really good thermal hygrometer. Get you some good moisture meters. And don't feel like that you can go into any old building and just pull out your convergence meter and you can test the drywall, you can test the concrete, you can test the wood, and that's all you do. So don't do that. And so uh, that's that would be one of them. Uh, and then, uh, th- then, uh, secondly is I, I like to tell my guys, Hey, it's dry when it's dry. So you determine what your dry standard is and what your set your drying goal, determine what, what your drying goal is. And then you dry to that point. Don't make promises. Hey, I'm going to have your building dry in four days, six days, five days. No, you need to let the building tell you when it's dry. So the only way that you can let a building talk to you is through good meters. So let the building tell you when it's dry. Don't make, don't overpromise, because if you're the last person that touches those materials, boy, it's going to come back on you. So that's, I don't know, Pete, if whether that's a, a Mickeyisms you were looking for. Or well, I, you know, whatever it was that you had to say, Mickey, it wasn't the last, last word, but you need to kind of, I thought, fill in as part of the panel to get the last word in that area. And of course, a couple of the boys, Clayton and Josh, they're in there, you know, giving a good old attaboy to Mickey. So I guess at least resonate with a couple guys, and that's what's important. <laughs> let me let me go to uh, Cliff. I, I didn't get a chance to ask you any final thoughts or questions. I'm good, Joe. Thanks. And then I want to go to Ralph Moon. Dr. Ralph, final thoughts, anything you'd like to add? Yeah, I think it's been a real cohesive show, uh, kind of bringing in meters and concrete issues, flooring and so forth. But I think that my, my final point for the restoration contractors is to be sensitive about using the proper meters and being very uh, curious about the condition of flooring that you're removing or examining for its potential damage uh, with excessive moisture. Ralph, always appreciated. Uh, very interesting. What are you working on now, by the way? Any any more research coming out? Or are you trying to slow down a little bit, Ralph? Well, I met with some colleagues, and then the two guys that work with here, Neerig and Wells, about a, a test procedure to evaluate the effect of corrosion of cleaning solvents on various metal components. And we'll see to what extent I'll be involved with that. But we spoke to some length yesterday about designing the experimental design. Fantastic. All right. So this is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks to this week's guests, Bob Blockinger, Mickey Lee, Dr. Ralph Moon. Always great talking to you guys. My co-host, the Z-Man, John, you got to have faith. Most importantly, our loyal audience and sponsors, Next week, we've got an interesting show with the CEO of GHP Group out in, uh, I believe they're in uh, Arkansas or over in that area, Dominique Arietta. We've got Paul Grimm. He is their Director of Project Operations. And Ken Garza, their VP of Industrial Hygiene. They're doing some interesting stuff with respect to reactive versus proactive IAQ investigations. So looking forward to a great show with them next Friday at noon for the next episode of IAQ Radio Plus. For IAQ Radio, I'm Spike Reel saying thanks for listening.